welcome to the BK Show podcast. This is episode number 43, and today I'm joined by my good friend, Neil Cousins. Neil is the CEO of Modloft Furniture, where they make elite modern furniture for the contemporary home. Neil is also a member of the infamous now Wednesday night poker group that I'm part of, uh, and it was super awesome to get him on here and hear his story. Hey, real quick, you may have noticed uh, I took a few weeks off there, so some personal news. My wife is going to give birth literally any moment. I'm recording this on Tuesday, May 25th. Uh, Her doctor said, let's hope uh, you make it till Memorial Day. He's betting against that. Um, our son will be quite early as well. Uh, and so obviously there's been some stress around there. I've been trying to take some time off and, and get some other businesses in better shape uh, so that I can step away when my son is born. So um, with that, I'm going to put this podcast out today, uh, tonight on Tuesday, May 25th. Uh, and I will probably take a week off in between a few episodes. I have a few more recorded uh, with my friend Tony Yu from Vessi Footwear. I also recorded one yesterday with Ezra Firestone. Uh, and so I will put them out probably every other week, uh, which will give me some time to lock some guests in, record some episodes, get these published. Uh, so I'm sure you can understand uh, it's a very uh, stressful time in my life, but also a very exciting time in my life. And so uh, give me a break as uh, as I, as I kind of go every other week here, uh, and perhaps there'll be a little break in there to who knows what will happen uh but if 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 you've been enjoying the show and if you're if you're late to the show there is some unbelievable episodes in the past uh that i would definitely recommend going and checking out while i kind of go every other week here uh my one of my favorites if not my favorite is still episode one with Kayvon, uh, a very good friend of mine and he uh has one hell of a story uh and then just looking at uh most popular episodes that i can see here inside simplecast uh Check out episode four, 20 years in e-commerce with TJ Ferrara, 22 with Isaac Smith, uh, episode two and his returning episode with Brian Angel, uh, episode six and 36 with John Warren are popular episode seven, uh, from baseball to business, Taylor holidays, first episode is incredible. So is his second one. Uh, there, there's quite a few on here that I would definitely recommend checking out. So feel free if you haven't gone back, if you're, if you're, uh, you know, a late joiner of this podcast, uh, go back and check out some of the early ones. I think they're fantastic. And, and, you know, it's early. I, I don't think they quite got the love they, uh, should have got way back in the day. So definitely check those out. But anyway, thanks so much for your patience. Uh, I want to keep doing the show. I want to keep putting out, uh, episodes, uh, but you know, certainly a, a stressful time in my life and uh, also very exciting, uh, whenever my son decides to come join this world. So thanks for your patience. And, uh, I look forward to keep putting out more episodes, uh, in the future, but let's jump in to today's episode with Neil Cousins. Neil Cousins, welcome to the show, buddy. Thanks, man. Happy to be here. You are one of the last people from our Wednesday Night Poker group that I wanted to get on here. And turns out, I think you're the biggest whale of them all. We talked a little bit beforehand how big your business is. We don't have to get too deep into it, but wow, what a what a, what a big business, really cool business. Uh, and, and in, uh, in industry, people tell you to kind of stay out of, right? So Neil's the owner of Modloft. I probably said it in the intro, but um, furniture, man, who who knew? Yeah, furniture uh, is. Uh, it, it. I still tell people to stay away. It, it is a miserable business. It is. Uh, <laughs> it is. It's great. It's a lot of fun. Uh, the home sector is a, a great place to be, but uh, furniture in general uh, is is still a very difficult thing to deliver into people's homes today. I think you separated yourself in the right way, right? So I know. I know a few people that sell this. Maybe not as high end as some of the stuff you're selling, and. and it needs to be assembled when it gets there and that turns into a headache, right? Shipping is a nightmare and, um, yeah, furniture. I, I, I've never heard good things. So I'm, I'm curious to hear all the good things from you and how well you guys are doing and, and how you go about your business. Cause like I said, I've been told to stay away. 
Yeah, you know, uh, I think uh, uh, probably more value to your listeners is telling you all the bad things uh, because uh, we've we've been uh, we've been through hell and back uh, several times, and uh, and you know, I I know uh, startup guys and uh, in, uh, in the ecom space uh, typically hear all these wonderful stories about how this this company is an overnight success and that company is an overnight success, but really this is a, a decade in the making, and uh, you know, it's uh, it's it's, it's got. I got plenty of battle scars. I definitely want to hear some of those. I think that's the best part of this show is I, I, I try to be curious and ask questions and not just make it sound, you know, like everybody's figured it all out and we're all just running. Cause uh, that was one of the biggest things I struggled with early on was thinking I wasn't, I wasn't smart enough that the, the, the people above me had something figured out that I didn't have figured out and, and they don't, right. We're all just winging it. I, I would assume even 10 years in and doing as well as you are every day, you're like, Oh shit, uh, you know, I got to deal with this or what am I going to do next? Yeah, it's a, it's a, absolutely. There's a learning curve that uh, that never ends, and uh, that's a good thing, right? I mean, like, if who wants to be bored and doing the same thing over and over, whether you're working in a warehouse or you're or you're running an ecom business, uh, whatever it is, it's it's uh, nobody wants to be bored. It's definitely not boring. Well, I know where you are now, a little bit at least, and I hope we get there too. But like, I, I need to know how how you became you know, where you are now, right? Like you've been running Modla for what you, you said, almost a decade now. Uh, you guys are doing quite well, but I would imagine that wasn't your first foray into business. I, I'd love to hear where where it all started for Neil. I was one of those guys who, uh, one of those kids, I should say, that, uh, that uh, you know, started working from like an early, early, early age, um, or was interested in, in earning an, an, uh, an income from an early, early age. And not exactly sure where that came from. Uh, my dad was entrepreneurial, but he, but not till later in his career, not not in my formative uh, child years. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I don't know. I I started. Uh, I grew up uh, uh, in the eighties. Um, I was uh, I was heavily into gaming, um, not the gaming that is exists today per se, but the um, but the good old fashioned PC gaming days. Um, and, uh, I think, uh, my very first memory is playing uh, Microsoft flight simulator and, uh, which I think they, they just did a remake or they're doing a remake now. Um, but in any case, uh, yeah, I, I started from a gaming perspective and then, um, got really fascinated with this, uh, this thing called a bulletin board system, um, which I know you and I talked about a little bit. I'm not sure you, you you understood what I was saying. No, uh, literally have a note on my screen that says, "What the fuck is this?" Like I I know you're not much older than me, right? I I, I you know I I was born in the '80s, so I'm a little behind you, but I I didn't know. I don't even know what Microsoft Fight Simulator is, right? Like, is what was what was computer gaming back then, right? It was a you know I'm thinking of systems, so there was Atari, and then it moved it. You know, Nintendo was right as I was you know starting to come of age to play video games, and so that was eight bit. What what existed on computers back then? Even so, desktop wise, you had uh, you know you had Commodore sixty four. Well, I mean, I don't know if I'd call it. I, I guess you call Commodore sixty four a desktop back in the day. Um, you had Commodore sixty four, which turned into the Amiga. Uh, you had uh, you had Macs um, out there, the 2E uh, that had games on them, and uh, and then PCs. And I was uh, I was a PC guy from uh, day one. Uh, I am no longer a PC guy, but I was a PC guy from day one. And uh, and I uh, I spent uh, a considerable amount of time, um, uh, you know, discovering gaming. Gaming back then was 
to answer your question was uh, was initially text based. Uh, so uh, there's a game called Zork, for example. Um, uh, there's Hitchhike, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Um, there, there's a whole bunch of them that that existed. And basically, if you wanted to, uh, they're basically variants of Dungeons and Dragons, uh, in that you you know sometimes rolled virtual dice. Uh, you if you wanted to proceed forward, you typed move forward. Uh, you if you wanted to turn left, you typed turn left. I mean, it was it was uh, pretty it was pretty. Uh, uh, elementary if you will but in some respects uh it it escalated my my education quite a bit because uh here you are you know seven years old eight years old and you're and you're hype just like in dungeons dragons when you're reading a book or something in in pcs you're uh you know in these games you were you were literally typing what you wanted to do and uh so you had to you had to get pretty proficient in your vocabulary it was a it was interesting times, and then the, they started turning in graphical uh, a little bit, um, and that was uh, like a Microsoft Flight Simulator, which was basically like you fly to an actual jet uh, across the, the the globe, uh, landing it, taking it off, uh, all the instrument panels. Uh, I think they actually built it to. The rumor was they built it to uh, to actually built flights, real flight simulators for for uh, training pilots but um in any case yeah the, the, the games were they were all over the place but they they grew kind of quickly um they uh you know there was a company called sierra online that came out uh they came out that started making games like leisure suit larry and king's quest um and those kinds of games and um and those were more of graphical nature um still kind of rpg-ish and uh yeah it was I could go on and on about gaming, but I but I won't. Well, I just Googled Microsoft Flight Simulator and yeah, this is retro, man. This is crazy. And you're right, there there was something that came out in twenty twenty, like a new version of it. Um There you go. 82. So we um, How far along the path is like maybe I'm gonna date myself here, but like Oregon Trail, right? I was pretty young in school when we were playing on on green screen computers and playing Oregon Trail. Yeah, I think that's like late eighties, um, if I remember correctly, maybe early nineties maybe early 90s but late 80s but yeah it was uh, uh i think that was along the same lines um yeah and i was playing on green screens too by the way <laughs> green crts uh, uh i remember my first color monitor that was pretty cool um but yeah so i mean to to circle back to what you said i i am not that much older than you i'm in my mid 40s uh but i started really really young um and uh, we're talking like five years old when I was playing on my first, when I got my first 8086 PC. And, um, and uh, you know, that was a direct result of my dad who had, uh, who was a systems engineer at, at one of the largest hospital systems in Miami, in South Florida. And um, I used to, you know, hang out that uh, in big mainframe rooms and, and hide behind uh, mainframes and play hide and seek. And, uh, you know, it was, it was good times. Um, so I got exposed to computing very, very early. Well, how does that turn into like starting your own bulletin board system? First of all, what is a bulletin board system? Ah, uh, you know, um, I'm going to have your readers do some uh, Googling when they're listening. But I'm no, do it right now. <laughs> uh, a bulletin board system. Um, it, it's not that dissimilar to today's version of a website, if you will. Um, it was uh, the precursor to to the World Wide Web. Uh, where 
through dial-up modems, you had a phone number and you could uh, connect to a, a system that was uh, really intended to be a community. There was forums, there was, you know, lots of communication back and forth. Um, but it was one, uh, the, the, you know, being, being dial-up uh, in the very early days, there was one user at a time allowed on there. Right, so you type, you, you go in your 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 uh, Hayes or U.S. Robotics modem, and put in three zero five 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 one two one two, and you know whatever the your bulletin board was, and you uh, uh, that you wanted to go visit, and and you would get a busy signal if somebody else was on it. Uh, it's <laughs> pretty insane when you think about that today. Uh, eventually, they started creating like a you, you could have like a bank of phone numbers and stuff like that, but it was still one user per number. Um, and, why was it? Why uh, was it phone numbers and not like? I'm thinking IP addresses, right? I can't even picture why. Why you would go to a phone exist. number? <laughs> it didn't exist. Yeah, it was, you everything was tethered to that to that copper, um, and then you know ISDN came out. Uh, after dial up uh, and and that made things a little easier but yeah it was it was uh it was tethered to a phone number and uh it's a one person at a time so you would literally just robo dial the the bulletin board you wanted to call um and uh and uh, once you got on uh you know you could stay on as long as you want and uh, and tie it up uh, so if you were uploading or downloading any files or whatever you know you might be on there for an hour or two um and so uh, bulletin boards were, uh, I don't know, I think they were, again, uh, not dissimilar from, from uh, the World Wide Web today. I mean, they, it was a place to build a community. It was a place to, uh, to, to meet, meet some friends. Um, it, was, uh, it was a place to share wares, as they would call them, right? Uh, so um, you would trade files and, and sort of the, uh, the files of choice back in the day were people uh sharing uh sharing video games that were uh that were probably not supposed to be shared not probably they definitely were not supposed to be shared they were copy protected by manufacturers um, and there was a whole community of people cracking quote unquote cracking video games uh code and uh and distributing the game the 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 game online and uh and that was, uh, I guess you could call that sort of a, uh, to relate it to more of your audience, uh, relatable to like Napster, if you will. Uh, but, but again, in, in sort of the early, early days. Help me understand. So I'm, I'm always curious on how information spread back then, right? I think we had our mutual friend Jeff Vogel on before. He was talking about his dad's VW Beetle business and, and you know, it was pre-internet, right? And they're, they're uh, showing up at, at, at meets and, and putting ads in, in magazines. How did you even know what number to dial to get onto someone's bulletin board, you know, hopefully and not get a busy signal and then, uh, you know, download some things from them. How did you guys even interact on like learning about other people's bulletin boards? Yeah, you know, it's, um, that's a really great question. I don't remember because I, I was so young and because it was so long ago, I don't recall my first sort of bulletin board, but there was a, um, there were services that eventually be, uh, that eventually became say America online, um, AOL, uh, there was one called CompuServe, uh, that existed around the same time. And that was sort of a, a, a larger enterprise version of bulletin boards, if you will. And, and people were sneaking off and having, you know, sharing bulletin board numbers on there. 
um, in that community. Uh, if you ever, you know, back then, like somebody would say, your friend would come over with his floppy disk and say, Hey, I got this new game. And, uh, that, uh, that I, somebody gave to me or whatever. And, uh, there'd be like a pre-roll before every game, uh, that was cracked, uh, that who, who said, who cracked it and where you could go get more of them like that. Um, and, uh, and so you, uh, you one by one, like started getting, finding a game here or there and, or being given a game and it has a phone number for some webs, website, some bulletin board. And, uh, and uh, yeah, just one by one, you started building a sort of a directory, if you will. And and then people started publishing directories and so on and so forth. Are you at home, like writing all of these in a notebook then? Kind of. Yeah. Phone, uh, literal phone numbers, like actual phone numbers, like you would in a, in a Rolodex, if you will. <laughs> That's insane. So like, uh, you know, in, in, in modern in the modern world uh of the internet and modern marketing uh whether you like it or not porn leads the way on everything right they're the first to discover how to use everything was that the case in bulletin board systems too not really because um not actual visual porn because uh images were not terribly you know you're still largely analog on photos um and and you know the concept of scanning a photo and and sharing that photo uh is it wasn't so easy um so no i i mean i'm sure there was a, maybe there was i i don't want to be too naive i i was you know again in my single digit years when i started this so uh it's possible they existed and i didn't know but um certainly later on uh you know as you said porn tends to be an early adopter to technology and and uh, they definitely jumped on quickly once uh once you know, the speed of, of transfer, uh, uh, sped up. So, you know, when we're talking back in the early days, I had a 300 baud modem, what for anybody who knows what that means. Um, and, and, you know, it, it turned from 300 to 600 to 1200 to 2400 to, you know, so on uh, doubling, so on and so forth. And really not till you got to like 56,000 K did you, were you even fast enough to even consider really trading at files at any sort of speed? Yeah, I wonder if it, if it would even be files or more, you know, written word back then, right? like a, a Fifty Shades of Grey sort of thing. I'm sure that existed. Absolutely. De- definitely on CompuServe. Um, I, I don't know. Again, I'm sure there were bulletin boards with all kinds of shady stuff going out there. But but yeah, I trafficked it in the uh, in the gaming world. Uh, it's taboo to talk about for sure. But, my, you know, my friend Jake from uh, Minneapolis Meetup said it to me a few years ago, and I can't shake the idea they, that porn was kind of the first at everything. They were the first to do pop-ups. They were the first to do chat in the in the lower window. They were first to do a lot of stuff in marketing, obviously first to do. They're the biggest portion of the Internet that no one talks about. And so uh, I assume there was something back there. Look, on your 300, I don't even sure. know what you said, gig mode? 300 what? Oh, it's definitely not gig, bod. right? What's a BOD? B-A-U-D. I'm not sure what that stands for, actually. We should go look it up together right now. <laughs> but how long does a 300 bot? Like, first off, you got to hear, you know, you got to dial into the to the what is the internet, right? And like, how long does it take you to load one of these like text only? But you know, just Google bulletin board system 80s if you want to look at what I'm looking at. But like, how long does it take for you to go from you know turning your computer on to get one of these to load back then? Oh, uh, well, I mean, you had to turn on uh, both your computer, then your external modem back in the day. Uh, eventually, modems became internal cards, but uh, initially they were external. Um, 
only and uh, as far as i know and um yeah it'd be, it'd be a good five ten minutes <laughs> between boot up to uh to being able to start dialing out um a 300 baud modem just for perspective transfers 300 bauds per second or 300 uh k per second is <laughs> not a lot um so it's uh it is a uh it is a very slow slow process uh but I I do see there's there's plenty of people out there on the web that that are showing uh, that you can go listen to the sound. It, it is that great, wonderful sound. <laughs> this is like a trip down memory lane for me as far as like looking at these photos and some of the 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 computers they're showing. Like, look, I didn't have my own computer until I was on my own. Like, at, you know, at 19, I think I bought a used one at a garage sale, and that was that was my first one. Um, but I remember in school having you know floppy disk and playing um, Oregon Trail, and then we eventually got. Uh, you know those those bubble looking uh max when i was in high school like those came in and and sure. i took a coding class in high school where i learned basic html uh, like level one and level two we built our own website i built my band a website you know black background and flames and whatever else uh, a cheesy high schooler would make for a metal band but like uh yeah. i'm a little jealous that at, at a young age you were surrounded by this technology and i'm sure it served you well right and and it's between like watching that and then like seeing moore's law in effect like how, how far we've come and how fast we've come is crazy to me yeah, I mean it's th that's the that's the strange thing. Um, that's the exciting part, actually. I you know I've gotten to see it really from if I was born maybe five years earlier, I really would have seen from day one. But it was pretty close to day one. And uh, w when we're talking about social community and and you know uh, the world expanding beyond your four walls, um, and so you know I I was. Uh, I was meeting people around the, the, the world, really, but certainly in the U.S. Uh, at, you know, again, a very young age um, and just knowing the world was bigger than than my four walls, like I said. And, um, you know, I eventually uh, I eventually created my own, uh, quote unquote, uh, hacking group <laughs> um, and and uh, we started um, we started cracking video games ourselves. Um, again, I think the statute of limitations on this has ended, so I'm okay to talk about this now. But, but uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, we would we would go out there and and um, and compete to see who is going to distribute video games the 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 earliest. So the the next great video game that came out, who would be the one that would come out with it first uh, and release it to the world? Uh, it was a it was a big competition, and uh, really got me into. Uh, into my competitive spirit and um and uh and it, and it really became uh something where you are um you know 24 7 constantly trying to uh to to be the best in releasing video games it was kind of crazy was there any financial gain to to cracking the game and releasing it on your bulletin board or was it all strictly like ego i'm the one who cracked it i got to put my name on the front of it no, um, there was no financial gain. If anything, my my parents, whether they knew it or not, were supporting me uh, at a healthy clip uh, to to do this. Um, back then, you had to, uh, you know, almost all the video, uh, almost all the the bulletin board systems were uh, were long distance, uh, and you were paying long distance rates. Um, and they were not cheap, uh, so you a user was. Uh, there were those out there that would, uh, you know, 
traffic in the the uh, borrowing of people's long distance cards. Um, uh, you would like you you could have like an AT and T or whatever long distance card um, associated to you, and and when you wanted to dial out, uh, you could. Uh, you could use those cards in order to uh, to have like some bulk long distance savings rate, um, and and there were there you know like the dark web today there were plenty of people trading those those card numbers so that you can dial out on someone else's dime literally um, <laughs> kind of kind of shitty to say that. Now, <laughs> you're, you're bringing back memories I don't even remember having. Like I, I you know. Uh, until I had actively just thought about it now, I don't remember my parents saying, Hey, you know, we, like we, we would only call my grandparents occasionally, or we would only call, uh, some cousins occasionally. Cause we didn't have the money to pay the long distance bill. And like, uh, I forgot that those times even existed. It's insane to me. And then to think, you know, I didn't even know that the, the internet, if you will, was calling phone number. I had no idea. Yeah. It's, uh, it, it, it was until, you know, way later on that, that obviously after, after the America line online to the world where you were, where you could just literally just type in an IP address into a browser bar and, and, and end up, you know, somewhere else in the world. Uh, but back to your, your other point, you know, it's what's unique is, uh, I, and, and I don't, I don't think about it often enough, but I should, um, you know, just really the, the evolution of, 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 humankind really um during this this tech boom um where you know again we were we were tethered to cord corded phones and copper and um local phone numbers and you know i think i was i was just in a in a hotel recently and and they were still uh charging um long distance uh if you dial out i mean those i remember those days right and so you know, I think I think just really seeing how community formed um, globally uh, is has been really fu- fun to watch, really interesting to watch. And 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 by the way, you know, they uh, sometimes I'm accused of being a little too uh, cranky uh, when somebody's coming out with a new like technology, and I'm like, oh, we've I've seen this five other times already. Like it's just been called this before or that before or whatever, right? E- everything is just like nine out of 10 times, everything is just an improvement over something that's already happened or rebranding or repackaging or so on and so forth. And, you know, that when, when you have uh, been around in this space for, for as long as I have, you, you've seen it all and, and not, not, not everything is terribly original these days. But it, I, I don't know, doing a, a, a deep dive back to where you began and even try, just remembering my childhood, it makes me so, excited for where we're going like the the, where we've come since you and i were kids to to now is bananas right and um i can't imagine a better time in history to like be alive let alone to be our kids and be their age starting out with what's just about to shift now um man things are gonna yeah it's scary i tell this to my wife all the time my wife um would prefer that nothing changes further. Uh, but, but the, the reality is, I mean, you know, everything is, everything is moving so quickly and, you know, I have a seven-year-old and the odds that he drives a car in 10 years, I don't know. I think it's pretty low. I, I mean, I know driving cars already is historically low 
for teenagers now for 16 and you know 16 to 21 uh nobody's in a rush to get it i remember like counting down the days so i could get my my learner's permit at 15. now where do they want to go where, where do they go they they don't go anywhere they don't they they stay and they facetime and they play roblox and minecraft and you know whatever they're they're they have nowhere to go there's no mall they go to anymore they're really uh, and congregate at there's movies are at your fingertips um you know so very rarely do uh do kids today already rush to get as i understand it rush to go get a driver's license so imagine 10 years from now when we have fully autonomous vehicles uh you know what's gonna happen it's crazy to think about that my kid is not gonna is it may never drive a car but i like to think of it as like we've fast like we've we freed up so much time right and that time's going to get filled with even even greater things that'll free up even more time and so uh you know fast food maybe isn't the the best uh choice of analogy here but like they sped up eating in grocery stores and it, like we, we don't have to farm anymore we don't have to do a lot of things we didn't do and so that like that's just the next step in this evolution that uh we don't need to drive cars and uh, it's going to get rid of, of a lot of jobs probably as well uh you know not needing to have truck drivers or anything like that but it's only going to lead to more innovation and more interesting and cool things yeah there were some really cool threads uh on twitter uh, a few weeks ago when amazon came out with their most uh recent uh annual letter i think it was jeff bezos last letter uh that he he uh authored and and the argument basically is that your um your time has been uh by by having prime all those trips that you used to take to go to the grocery store or take to go to uh pick up toilet paper or you know, runs to target or whatever, all that time, if you put it in terms of units of money, uh, you, you know, that $129 Amazon prime annual membership saves you about depending on what your, your, you know, your income level is, uh, it could save you anywhere from a thousand dollars a year to $20,000 a year, just from the convenience of being able to say, Oh, I need to buy more like today I need, I ran, I'm running out of disposable mass. I need to buy more mass 10 seconds before this call hit, you know, hit buy and it's done. I don't have to run anywhere. I don't have to get in the car. I don't have to do anything. Uh, that time savings is, is amazing. The weird part is the hate for all of that, right? How many people in this country hate Jeff Bezos because of, because of what? Like he created something amazing that allowed more space, more freedom, saved you tons of money like it's a, a fantastic thing that he's done with amazon an incredible feat and people hate him oh he has too much money or or like he's evil of some i, I don't understand the the other side of people is it just that they're scared of change well there's certainly an element of people being scared of change right but i think it's i think it's uh you know there's a, a, a we'd be remiss to to not discuss you know or look at it in terms of what it's done to 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 small businesses in in america that you know we're running brick and mortar retail stores um and you know amazon comes in and destroys every independent bookseller known to man or or almost all of them uh, hold on though hold hold on i'm gonna interrupt then because then like are you gonna make that same point when autonomous driving gets rid of all truck drivers like do we have to feel bad that technology has evolved and we've evolved as a species or like do 
uh, like I think, look, it sucks for those people. Amazon came along and innovated, and they did not, right? And so they need to continue to learn skills. And and I think Amazon provided an opportunity, albeit a questionable one at, at some points when you sell on Amazon. But like they've provided an opportunity for small business as well. Well, sure. So I mean, you're that's that's the benefit of hindsight today, right? But as it was happening, um, you know, there wasn't an Amazon marketplace for small businesses to to go on to. There wasn't Shopify stores. Um, so you're so you displaced a whole segment of the population of of the small business community, uh, and it took some time for them to 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 get back, right? And and now, you know, now on the other side of it, or as we're on the other side of it, of course, it's, I think, I think anybody who worked in retail, you know, seven days a week in their family TV shop, uh, you know, what it is thrilled to be able to just throw something online, uh, you know, put it in a marketplace and, and make a few, few shekels and, uh, and, and, you know, stay home. I mean, like it's uh, anybody who, anybody who has been, in brick and mortar retail and has moved to e-com of course sees the benefit of it now there's a there's a downside arguably from a community perspective um you know i i am one of those guys that still likes to go in and look at vinyls uh, in a record store um because i i like to touch and feel product uh, i think dave talked about this a little in his episode um you know there's, there's this weird dichotomy I'm, i i sell thing I, I make product today and been my entire career has been in e-commerce, really. Um, uh, but but I personally still enjoy touching and feeling things. Uh, uh, just like today, I'm going after this call. I'm going to get my son a new uh, baseball bat um, for Little League, and uh, he's outgrown his current one. And I could go on Amazon and buy it right now, but I want to go and f- go to Big Five and touch it and feel it and have him take a few practice swings safely. Uh, and, and, you know, see how, how it goes. And I think that that experience is, is not, you know, certainly not replicable in, on Amazon yet or on e-com. I think there's room for both, right? Uh, you know, there was some fallout there, of course, when Amazon came along, but that drove the innovation for Shopify that it ended up like spurring this creator economy where the, uh, now I think there's more opportunity than there was for you to open up a shop, you know, on Main Street and, and make a few bucks. I think there's even more opportunity and it's and it's opened up a whole new digital era uh, that you don't necessarily even need to sell things, right, to uh, sell things like actual things. You can sell knowledge, you can sell yourself, you can sell entertainment, you can sell influence you can sell yourself if you're into that uh there's a lot of things that you can sell nowadays right so i think it drove innovation and and so while there was some displacement it forced growth it did i mean you know the way they went about doing it is um again was harmful uh in some respects because they did it by selling at next to no margin right so you're that you're that that mom and pop retail store and you're you know you're selling at MSRP or what thereabouts. And here comes Amazon selling at like, you know, 10 points above. <laughs> um, and, and I didn't really get it back in the day. Uh, I do now, obviously, but I didn't really get back in the day. How, how could they afford to do this? Like, I'm, I, I, I thought Amazon's going to go out of business. Like, how can they, they can't sustain these margins. Right. Um, and, and uh, you know, I was a little naive in that respect, and I didn't, I didn't really understand that Wall Street had a bigger vision of funding losses year after year. 
Uh, and Bezos is famous for like you know sticking to his game plan despite Amazon, uh, Wall Street not liking him. And um, and they uh, you know that those, those to this day uh, Amazon, if you open up their financials, makes very little money. Uh, all their money comes from AWS. All their profits come from AWS, which is their cloud platform. So they they built this entire retail world um, to deliver us, pro, you know, toilet paper same day or next day. Uh, but at the end of the day, all their profits come from from cloud based server uh, solutions. It's got to be data soon enough, right? Like there's four, five, there's five units in this house of a name I can't say out loud, or you'll hear all of them go off right now. Um, and th- I'm sure they're collecting all of that data as they go along. And uh, there's got to be a play there as well in the future as far as harvesting that data. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, they that was the other reason, you know, uh, Amazon has not always been well loved is they they have uh, they're, they're notorious, not not unlike other retailers, frankly, but they were they were out and loud about it, uh, you know, taking categories that they saw selling really well and going out and sourcing their own private label version of something uh, and calling it Amazon Basics. And uh, and, you know, all of a sudden, if you were selling monster audio cables, uh, who the hell wants to spend $90 on monster audio cables when you can buy the Amazon basics version for 20 bucks. And it's basically the same thing. Yeah. They stripped brand from their platform. This is, you know, kind of what I was alluding to earlier of like, what is the value they bring? You're going to make sales being on there. I think you can start a business really quickly on there. Uh, but you're, I don't know if you could ever build a name off of Amazon. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, that's, you know, it's a good segue to later in the conversation here, but it's, but, but brand the definition of brand has changed quite a bit, right? Like you're, if you're selling a commodity, does brand even matter anymore? I mean, it does to some, I, I, I'm still one of those guys who still likes brand. Like I, there's only a certain amount of, I like Charmin toilet paper. I don't like single ply, <laughs> uh, what, you know, off brand toilet paper, but I get you to wipes my man. I'm telling you yeah, the future. Has arrived. You but, 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 you know, like, but on the other hand, do I care about uh, uh, some name brand canned soup? No, I, I, you know, I'll buy the Trader Joe's version happily. You know, in fact, the Trader Joe's version is better. Um, so, you know, I, I think I think the world has changed quite a bit uh, on the branding side, and, and commodities are in, are in a tough, tough spot, uh, uh, an incredibly tough spot. Which is why I think you're seeing a lot of CPG companies go out there and acquire, you know, these sort of DTC brands like Dollar Shave Club and that kind of stuff to, to, to try to hold on to some sort of branding. It's interesting to see. I, I don't know. I can't, I, again, it kind of ties back to furniture. Furniture is commodity as well. Right. And so like, how, how, you know, how not to jump too far ahead and, and we'll get back to the conversation. I know we meandered all over the place there, but like yeah. you, don't you run into the same thing with Modloff? Like, how are how are you setting yourself apart as a brand so that people want to buy from Modloff versus buying anywhere else you can buy furniture? Yeah, you know that's that's the that's the toughie, right? So we you we ask ourselves every time we have a new design, uh, we ask ourselves, is this something that you can find in five five thousand other places, or somebody else can can you know um, knock off easily or whatever, and and if it doesn't pass that test, it goes in the trash, uh, that design. Um, we, uh, what the type of product we make is very, very difficult to make. 
um, we, we specialize in, I mean, for those of your audience who don't know, we make modern contemporary furniture. Um, uh, it's sort of European modern inspired, but sort of accessible to, to Americans uh, at, at American price points and at American sort of comfort. Um, and so, uh, you know, we, we, uh, but what we do is very difficult. We don't, we, we, uh, source materials from all over the world and combine them. Uh, so we'll take, uh, you know, a, a stainless steel frame with a, uh, on a, on a sofa with, uh, with a fabric made in, uh, North Carolina, with foam poured here and this poured there and you put it all together and, and, and it's not an easy thing for somebody to replicate. You, you, you can see cheaper knockoff versions of it on an Alibaba or something like that, where they're, they're, you know, pitching that to importers, but really it's, uh, it's incredibly difficult to build a good piece of furniture. Um, and certainly at the, at the price points and at the quality that we build it at. And, uh, that, that sort of is one of our moats. Um, but if we were selling, I mean, I got a call today, a, you know, a random call today from a company that decided to make uh, desks, uh, like just like kids desks for, for, for the, uh, during the pandemic. And they got stuck with like 5,000 extra desks. Uh, you know, all of a sudden kids don't need desks. And for A, we're going to the summer, B, uh, you know, kids are going to go back to starting to go back to school. And so they got stuck with all these extra desks and they, you know, what are they going to do with them? Like they're, they're trying to sell them on eBay and Amazon and whatever their cost of goods on that desk is about 50 bucks. Uh, you know, we, we don't have anything in that, in that price range, anywhere near that price range. Um, because if, if you can make it that cheap, uh, chances are something 10,000 people will make it. And so you're, you're stuck by definition, you're stuck with a commodity and, and it's a really terrible place to be. Well, I have a million questions about my life and it, they only get, the list gets longer every time I talk to you. Cause I don't, I didn't, I don't think any of us really in that poker group knew a, a ton about you. Right. Um, and most of our conversations skew away from e-commerce, I would say, and more into just life and uh, some deep conversations. So I have a lot of questions, but I want to know how we got there, right? So transition us from uh, your cracking video games and distributing them online, like transition there into like, you know, how, how you even started in e-commerce. Yeah. So, I mean, those, the, those bulletin board days were sort of formative for me then that they helped me understand organization. I was the quote unquote president of our cracking group <laughs> at, at uh, you know, 10 years old and I was directing 20 something year old uh, fellow geeks like me um, and coordinating them across, you know, remotely uh, just like we do today uh, across the world. And um, at 10 years old, <laughs> where to God, I even, I even met uh, my dad took me on a trip to meet some of my sort of like partners, what? if you will. Uh, like when we were 12 years old, I would, we, I, I flew to Dallas and I flew to a couple places to just meet, um, some some of these guys who I'd never seen in person before. I've spent hours on the phone talking to them uh, or typing with them or whatever, but never met them in person. Uh, and um, so it's it formed my it was my formative years of uh, or my early years of sort of how to run an organization, believe it or not. Um, and um, that's wild. You know, though. Like how how did your dad be like? Yeah, you know what? You met some guy on. Were they even calling it the internet back then? I have no idea. And he was like, Yeah, let's fly to meet him. 
Yeah, you know, I think um, it was the, the, my dad was a uh, is not was is a um, uh, you know a, a serious computer geek um, and tech geek, and so you know me doing that was sort of like you know, I'm a big sports fan. I th- I think you know, and uh, you know I. Uh, coaching my son's little league team is like one of my joys of life. Like it, uh, I can only imagine what that, that what I was doing was the same thing for him. Uh, he was not into sports, care less about sports, uh, which is even more amazing that I came out a huge sports fan. Uh, but, but um, so for him, I think this was like, uh, this was like, Oh, there's a chip off the old block. <laughs> Uh, thing and and he you know he encouraged it he again he footed the bill for it I I got very expensive computers that I probably had no business getting at the time um, uh, and we weren't exactly you know swimming in money at the at that time in my life and uh, and yet um, he supported it. well they my parents both my mom and dad obviously supported me and uh, yeah it it turned into you know it turned into a hobby of course I during junior high and high school, I, I built computers for a living, uh, on the side and, and, uh, you know, I would, I would build PCs mostly, uh, and, and that was fun and, uh, paid some bills and, but, uh, yeah, the, 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 those, that time period, uh, transitioned into, um, I believe I, uh, as I was telling you, the, you know, I, I, I was the, the only regret I have, uh, in life uh, really is that uh, I got so burned out from being in front of a screen and I craved wanting like real world. And it's not that I was, I played sports and I went to school and I had friends and all that. It wasn't like shuttered in my room, but you know, I didn't go to, when all my friends were going to sleep boy camp, I was spending the summer in front of my computer. Uh, And I, I think I sort of got burned out by the end of high school. I got a girlfriend uh and uh who believe it or not is uh, now my wife um and uh, uh high school sweethearts and um and we um and i went off to college and you know fell in love with college sports obviously i went to university of michigan initially and and you know i was there during the fab five and and wow. uh, and I thought, bet that was you know, awesome tom brady though yeah i mean it was all i was amazing for a sports fan um actually i was my freshman year weber right chris weber had just left uh to the draft so i was there for the other four um but uh in any case like it was i decided to walk away from my computer for a little for like three four years and um and you know i didn't completely disconnect obviously i was i was doing i was studying computer science for a little bit in school and and so on and so forth i would i didn't completely disappear but um really those four those four years as as history uh proved was the years that uh you know the the early days of world wide web and uh and uh and netscape and all that stuff and um i sort of took a step back during that time period and um you know had i not i'm i might have uh you know it might have been uh very wealthy at an earlier age but but um was that like the, was, you know, right around 2000 do you think maybe you earlier. wouldn't have been wealthy 
and you would have you would have picked the wrong horses. There was a lot of it's kind of like the NFT thing right now, right? Like it's it's pretty wild. A lot of people are going to lose. Uh, do you think you would have picked the right horses through that? Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think I think I think knowledge is power, and so like the knowledge. I, I don't know that I would have been wealthy at that minute kind of thing, but I, I think the knowledge that was people were accumulating then I, I, I came in with this sort of like built in head start because I had started so young and I, I, I was coding at a young age. I coded in, in Pascal and C and assembly and, um, uh, basic and and so i you know th- these bulletin boards by the way that you that you you put up were just pieces of software uh and you can buy them off the shelf or or get them off the shelf and and sort of hack the shit out of it um not not unlike a website today right so uh so i was i was coding um and and i sent it sort of just fell back uh html sort of came out and i'm like this is so lame HTML, visual basic and HTML. And I'm like, what is all this? This is all this WYSIWYG stuff is like, this is not real coding. I'm, I'm sitting there in an assembly doing zeros and ones and, and literally, um, and, and hexadata and all that stuff. And you're, and you come out with this stuff and it was just, it just seemed lame to me. Um, and I just didn't really, I was young and I didn't understand what was happening in front of me. And, and the opportunity there. And so in any case, I, 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 I took a, uh, a little break and, um, you know, literally those four years uh, of college were really the, the time the World Wide web started, you know, uh, for, uh, you know, going, getting big. Well, being 18 and having a girlfriend may do that to you as far as getting a little distracted. Uh, but is it weird to look back and think, you like it i don't know, I always think of that like getting old right like the, i have a lot of friends who are like back in my day we did that you know the new stuff is you know not cool or whatever i don't want my kids playing on their tablets you were kind of doing that with the new like coding methods right new technology at a young age you were like this is kind of lame I, back in my day i used to do zeros and ones yeah it was a it was a very early so the flip side is it was a very early lesson in not to be that guy right so i learned i did i was that guy or that kid uh and yeah, now, you know, to bring it to the today's level, when I try to explain NFTs to somebody uh, and they're like, what the heck are you talking about? Like, who's going to buy a painting for 20 million, a JPEG of a painting for $20 million or whatever, or just blockchain, like blockchain is all, you know, Bitcoin and Ethereum. And I'm, by the way, not anywhere near the expert Taylor is or, or Dave is, but, but I am, uh, I'm learning or you for that matter. Um, but but I, I understand that you know the basic tenets of it and, and I certainly understand the economic tenets of it and and the reality is like I was I was uh, almost everyone in my peer group today uh, says what is this other than some speculative like you know gambling and I you know I, I can I get it I, I understand that concept um, but then you, you try to explain to somebody like what is a gold bar like literally like a physical gold bar what is what store of value is that like what especially when when the the fiat is no longer tied to it like what is the what why is there value to that you know why will you put your ira in gold but you won't put it into bitcoin you know um, or something along those lines and so i think i learned that lesson early on and that's helping me today <laughs> uh you know later on in life it helped me uh sort of not have this like 
back in my day thing. Right. And, um, and, uh, yeah, I, I still, I still do that today. I stay very relevant today in, in all technology. Um, I'm the guy who's playing, you know, I'll be in my office and my, I know my son just got home from school and he gets his 30 minutes of screen time and he's jumping on Roblox and I'll, I'll be in my, my office and jump on Roblox with him and, uh, and, uh, and play with him. And he'll be freaking out that dad's in the middle of his workday is just in a totally different location is jumping on and playing, you know, a fall blocks with him or banana eats or whatever. Um, so, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I stay relevant with technology today for sure. You know, it's it's cool to learn that moment early. I think I had the same thing. Uh, my ex-wife's father was very much up on technology and running his iPhone, and then I bought my dad one. And like that, after ten years of bugging him to get an iPhone, right? He wanted the flip phone, and he told me he's sixty. Basically, thinks life is over, and there's no reason for him to learn anything new. And I was just like, holy shit! I don't want to be that guy. Like, I want to be able to keep up with everything. And and you know, Moore's losses were only going to go faster and faster and faster. So I don't I don't really want to get left behind. Yeah, you know, I think there's, I think I'm still like everybody else. I've struggled to find that happy medium, right? Because I don't want to. Um, I was just talking the other day. I, I don't own an Apple Watch or any sort of smartwatch, and and you know, they, I'm I'm the considered the the resident geek around here. Why would I? Why don't I own a watch? And I'm like, you know, today I I'm I'm that guy that's trying to practice some sort of healthy balance. Like I leave my phone in my kitchen when i go to sleep now i don't have it at my bedside i don't put it in my nightstand because even the nightstand you hear the little buzz going off and it disrupts your REM sleep and i just i'm trying to find that healthy balance between technology and like disconnecting um and and i don't think i don't think anyone's really figured it out yet everyone's trying different things and and so on and so forth um and uh i think that it's uh so yeah, I don't know. I when I look at when I look at um, new technology, I'm I want to embrace it. And I also don't want to go head feet in and and you know uh, and and really uh, uh, get immersed to the degree that that nothing else exists in the world. Yeah, I I mean notifications is a different animal. I've had my notifications turned off for a couple of years now. I went to an event where they made us like put our phones in a in a bin the whole time we were there um and i just felt the stress melt off of me of like not i do wear an apple watch and at the time it was just my wrist would vibrate every i don't know 46 seconds right i don't know i don't know about you but i get about 300 emails a day between the nine different g suite accounts i have for my multiple businesses and my personal email and so um yeah that was a big thing for me too so i I totally get it and we we tried to practice amish hour here somebody taught me amish hour or like the one hour before bed to turn off all screens and and not look at your phone and um we tried that for a little while it worked for a little while and it was it was good i would say uh yeah my own uh dopamine needed needed more screen before i needed to i needed to scroll through twitter one more time before bed yeah i i need to, we need the tv at night but but you know the the um i i, oh, I was gonna say something and i lost my train of thought there but you um Yo, I was going to say, you know, like, have you been to a concert where they make you put your, your phone in the, in the bin and lock it up um, and you, you can't access your phone during, your, during a concert or during a comedy show or whatever? Like that, when I, when I first experienced that, I'm like, what the hell is this? Like, this is, not, this is not cool. Like, what if we have an emergency and the babysitter needs to find us or whatever? And then, of course, you think back in your day when your parents were going out to concerts and they didn't. You know, if there was an emergency at home, the babysitter 
figured it out. Like there was, we gave him the con- emergency contact list of somebody who would be available. Like th- this, this need to in- always be available. This is insane. And, uh, and, uh, you know, so I, I, I now enjoy that concept when I go to a show and they make you lock up your phone and, and they're doing it because they don't want you to take photography or video. But, but at the end of the day, like it's, you know what, to actually just be present and, and watch the show instead of holding up your phone and, and uh, recording the show and watching the show through the eyes of your phone uh, camera versus just your own two eyes. Uh, it's life-changing. It's different. And, and uh, so again, uh, there's, there's balance. Everything in life is about balance, right? And, and, and I think we're all striving to find what that balance is. Well, let's balance this show and get back to the original story. Uh, how did you come out? So, like you, you know, you you found the love of your life. You went to college and you got, you, you know, you uh, you you disappeared from computer life, but you got back and like t- take me into e-commerce, man. What what was one like? What was your step from from college into to e-commerce? Yeah, so I I think the uh, I at, right out of college I went to uh, law school. And, um, you know, I thought I, I knew I wasn't going to be a lawyer, but I, I, I also knew that I wanted to sort of, you know, run my own organization one day or whatever. And, and my parents advised me to go get a, uh, a law school degree. It can never hurt you. You can use it in life later. Uh, and I did about a th- little over three semesters, uh, almost four semesters. And, uh, so I, I'm over the halfway point of getting my my law degree and and decided, uh, but but at the same time I was I was uh, beginning to to uh, trade stocks at the time, and uh, and trading stocks back then you know again I'm going to sound like this 80 year old man to your audience, <laughs> but like back then you had a beeper with uh with like your stock ticker on your beeper, and you had uh and I had this like radio with a huge antenna, a radio uh, wave uh, stock ticker that would, uh, that I'd put on my desk while I was in uh, crim law and, and watching stocks uh, trade on it. Um, you couldn't actually execute trades on it, but you could, uh, but you, it was a sort of a real time stock ticker. Um, and so I was, I was doing, uh, I was trading stocks. Uh, it was, it was in the very early days of the tech boom um and we're talking late 90s uh and you're and you know i i got in knee deep in in you know what was a precursor to twitter and and reddit and all that with like a raging bull.com or something like that where you would again be in a community of people who are pumping certain uh, equities and whatever um and i i i fell in love with um with that for a little bit and uh, I specialize in the tech space, uh, which, you know, back then was sort of as speculative as, as, as crypto is today. Um, you know, you're going to invest in Facebook or no, Facebook didn't exist then, but I, I don't know, something along those lines. And I actually fell in love with, um, I actually fell in love with the telecom space. Um, and, and I worked with, all, I, I, I spent a lot of time with small cap, micro cap stocks. Um, some people would call them penny stocks, uh, but not penny stocks in the name of, uh, of like, you know, speculative garbage, 
but but actual stocks that just reverse merged into the the stock market. Remember, I told you before, everything is everything new is old. Uh, so like today's back boom is basically the same thing as uh, penny stocks back in the day. Uh, there were some legit companies using it as a vehicle to reverse merge into the market, and there was others that were using it to, um, uh, to you know, to, to fraudulently, let's just say, um, gambling, pure gambling. And so we, uh, so I, I, I got really involved in a in a company that um, uh, that specialized in bringing fiber to the home. Um, I don't want to spend too much time here because I'll, I'll we'll be here forever, but. But but the but but the the concept was that the that uh, uh, you know again we were still largely in in broadband at that time um, you know DSL modems I think were the the most popular form of broadband at that moment um, and fiber came out and it was insanely fast uh, and you could you could transmit video on it like you could watch. But we now watch Netflix. You could do back then on Fiber to the Home, and uh, and it was a really cool space. And I got really involved. I was I flew down to to meet with the companies uh, that I that I had invested in, and went, attended shareholder meetings, and so on and so forth. And got really excited about the space, uh, and um, and invested on on with others on behalf of it uh, on behalf of them. And, um, you know, it did really well until the, the, the stock market crashed and burned, um, the first sort of dot-com bust. And, uh, and I didn't really understand it because I'm like, well, what does this have to do with like all the pets.com that went crash and boom? Like, what, is these, these, what do these companies have to do with it? And I, I didn't really understand market dynamics and understanding where, how capital flowed uh, and how capital allocators where they decided to put their money. And so, you know, fiber to the home was literally picking up, digging concrete up and laying fiber, actual fiber pipes from a co-location down directly into your, into a, a neighborhood, into a home. Uh, it was, you know, largely why it was all wired. Um, and so it was a huge capital investment and, in, and all the companies in that space sort of, um, sort of uh, uh, lost, access to capital during that first bust. And um, it was yet another lesson in my life that uh, if I wanted to, uh, if I wanted to, uh, it's also part of my personality. I'm a bit of a control freak. Uh, at least that's what my wife and therapist tell me. And so, uh, you know, it was, it was one of those things where uh, I decided that I'm going to go out and start my own thing. I'm not going to invest in other people's things. I, I want control of my own destiny. Um, and so I started a, a business with a few childhood buddies of mine and, and uh, who were also tech geeks and, and uh, a, a friend that I met out here and a couple of friends I met out here. And we um, formed a, a group that um, today would seem kind of um, me too, if you will, or some, you know, everyone's done it already. But back then it was pretty unique. Uh, we were, we were, um, Starting niche websites um, uh, that were focused in you know very specific verticals that had high margin, and we were selling product that wasn't sold anywhere else on the internet um, at the time. There were, you know, back then there were not a lot of mass 
Amazon type spaces. Uh, Walmart wasn't online, Target wasn't online, uh, whatever. And so uh, we we started in several spaces. Uh, the, the most popular uh, of our websites that we launched was um, one in the consumer electronics space, or several in the consumer electronics space, but one in particular. And, um, and we were, you know, I, I think I mentioned it, we were selling plasma TVs back then before plasma TVs existed. Um, and uh, or before they existed in retail, I should say, or even yeah, retail at all. They, they were actually commercial grade plasma TVs that celebrities in the White House and whomever was buying and putting in, um, starting at ten grand and up. And uh, you know, for a bunch of twenty-four year olds uh, selling ten thousand dollar TVs with thirty-point margins on them or forty-point margins on them, uh, it, it you know we we thought we were we thought we were the shit. Uh, you know, just printing money back then um how did you get access to to, to be able to sell them what's the url i got way back machine pulled up i want to see this uh tv authority.com was one of them nice oh god i, sh- I haven't even looked at the way back i should look <laughs> probably it was hopping in 2004 2005 huh did you find it lots of screenshots back i'm gonna share my screen with you this makes great radio but i'm gonna share it go to to Wayback machine and look up tvauthority.com if you want to see it yeah i'm gonna go look myself there you go yeah yeah there it is that's not terrible um so how did you get access to sell plasma tvs back then so um plasma tvs um we so, sorry, sorry this story. Q&A, how far from the plasma TV should I be? This is, uh, the questions back then are hilarious, sorry. That's awesome. Uh, <laughs> oh, man, this is just giving me some really insane flashback oh, here. That's funny. Um, what, uh, how, did I get, how did we get access to them? Um, so my current partner at Modloft um, was an original partner of this, and um, he, uh, he lasted five minutes in there because he was running another company called brands mall, uh, which was again, sort of a conglomerate of, of just random stuff that you could drop ship from any distributor. Um, so, uh, he, he had his one contribution was that he noticed that on his site that he had 10 billion SKUs on that people were starting to buy plasma TVs that he had been buying from distributors and drop shipping. Uh, and so, uh, he turned us on to those distributors. We opened the accounts. Um, again, there wasn't a lot of issues with retail because these were commercial grade products. So you didn't have to, you didn't have to have a storefront or any of all the other things that, that, you know, brand, uh, that brands were requiring back then to sell online. Um, and so we were selling commercially graded Sony and Panasonic and Fujitsu and, Pioneer and those types of brands. Um, and uh, one by one, we started, you know, uh, finding better distributors and better drop shippers. And, and then eventually opened up, you know, near the end, opened up uh, direct accounts with, with the Sonys and Samsungs of the world. I love that you started drop shipping. Uh, often people laugh when I started there, but like uh, I still do today. I, I think it's a fantastic method of distribution and, and an easy way to get started. And so I love that you started there. I would love 40 point margins on a $10,000 item for me to drop ship right now. That sounds incredible. Um, yeah. 
what, uh, how does that come to an end? Like, obviously, prices didn't remain at ten thousand dollars for for long, but how does that come to an end? Yeah, it was. It was. I think I may mention it was an ugly end. Um, it was. Uh, we we were. We were uh, prices were dropping. Competi- uh, so eventually, Best Buy started selling them at brick and mortar. Th- those screens. We we diversified into every part of the, the consumer electronics, whether it was, um, you know, audio speakers, uh, receivers, whatever. It wasn't. We didn't. So we we were trying to be sort of. Uh, uh, there's a company today that still exists today called Crutchfield.com that is sort of, is sort of our model. Um, and uh and uh we but, but but margins were shrinking to your point uh competition was going up um uh, we were the cpcs were going up uh or back then it were mostly cpms but then cpcs uh were going up uh we're talking like overture days um if you, if you know what that is <laughs> mm-hmm. um like the precursor to to Google AdWords. Um, Is that the company so, they bought to make Google AdWords? Uh, they did not, but uh, who bought Overture? I think it was a Yahoo or AltaVista. One of them bought Overture uh, or the tech behind it. Uh, but they were like the one of the first CPC networks, and um, and uh, so we were we were doing that. Then of course Google came out, and uh, so we we. We were growing this thing. We were getting big. We opened stores. We did, you know, uh, we, you name it. Uh, but uh, very first mistake we made was we, I did this with a, a bunch of um, close friends, like I mentioned, and we did a really poor job of doing all the legal stuff. Uh, so we didn't have. Um, we didn't have a really strong operating agreements. We didn't have really strong uh, controls, uh, voting chairs, the whole nine yards. We didn't, we barely ran board meetings, you know, like it was just, we were just 20 something year olds without a playbook, uh, you know, uh, that exists. The playbook obviously exists today. Anybody can go to LegalZoom and get any document you want today. But back then it was not so much. And so we, we were, we were just, just assume we were all good friends and, and we would figure it out. And um, one of our, one of my closest friends, uh, you know, got married, got had kids. Um, he was the first one to have kids at a sort of a young age in his mid twenties. And all of a sudden now you're, you know, and we could have a whole entire podcast about this. Cause I love talking about it as, as warnings, but, but you know, you, you, when you, when you take on partners, you're taking on their, their spouses, you're taking on their children, you're taking on their worries. Right. And, um, and to this day, I don't know exactly what happened, uh, that triggered, uh, his behavior, but he got to a place where he wanted out and he, uh, this was our CTO. And, um, one of the, you know, one of the, the big things about this business that, if, if you remember, I said we, we started by building a bunch of niche websites. Um, this one happened to be the biggest one that took off, but we had others. Uh, the Really, the what we didn't, I didn't really realize at the time, and I guess my partner did, <laughs> was that our tech, what, our, our biggest asset value was, was the website. It was custom coded. We built it from scratch. 
Um, it was incredibly SEO friendly. Uh, we, we had every trick in the book down at that time. Uh, and, and we, he started, I guess, on the side selling some of that software to other people uh, and developing uh, websites for them. And, and I think he quickly found out that that was more valuable than selling, you know, uh, consumer electronics, which was increasingly getting more competitive and getting uh, lower margins and more competition. And so he, he wanted out uh, and named the price that we thought was insane and it, a battle ensued. Uh, and uh, long story short, he ended up torpedoing the entire company um, and, uh, you know, spent way too much in legal fees and all that fun stuff. Uh, but yeah, it was, a, it was a, it was a very humbling experience though. It was my first taste of true failure. Um, I, we, you know, we had to file bankruptcy. Uh, we had to, uh, we had, uh, our customer dollar refunds we had to issue at the very end, uh, that we had to dig out of our pockets for. Um, it was, it was, uh, it was a horrible experience. Um, and, and most importantly, I lost like three really close friends, uh, during the process. And that, that, that alone was a horrible experience. So it took me a good two years, uh, to recover from that. That was, that was, that was a rough time. I bet, I bet it, you know, it affects you in business, right? Uh, You know, I didn't have anything to that magnitude, but one of the first things I ever did just it didn't work. Um, and I let it eat at me for a long time before I ever started again. This sounds like, you know, orders of magnitude bigger, let alone you're married, you have to file for bankruptcy, uh, you're losing friends. Um, I would imagine. Yeah. Really yeah. Pushes it, you away from starting again. Uh, well, it certainly makes you gun shy. You know, it wasn't my first thing I've ever done. Again, I've been entrepreneurial my entire life, so I wasn't scared of that. But my, my obviously I was afraid of disappointing my wife or, you know, investors or whomever. And so it was, it was, uh, there was that, you know, later in, later in the world, um, today for those youngins today, uh, failing in your first couple startups is like a badge of honor. Um, you know, there's countless stories of, of every, every guy today who, or every person I should say today, who's, who's, uh, I think the norm, not the not the exception, is somebody who has been VC funded once or twice and took the company to zero and lost every dollar of that investment uh, uh, that they raised, or their Series A or their seed or whatever. But then you know somebody believed in them and and came back and gave them more and more on the next idea and so on and so forth and. And, uh, you know, now today they took all those lessons and, and are succeeding, uh, to a certain degree, that's what happened with me. I, I didn't, I didn't know that it was going to, at the time, I certainly didn't know. And it wasn't, it was sort of shameful to have fallen. And, and, you know, you're talking about 20 something year olds that I invested five, six years of my life in that company, uh, which at that time seems like a lot, right? Uh, it is a lot even today, but it, at that time seemed like a lot uh, of your life. And so I was mourning a loss of my baby. I was more, you know, that my baby being the company, I was, I had, you know, dreams of buying a mansion in Los Angeles. And, and now I'm, uh, you know, now I'm like, uh, I'm starting from scratch again, from zero, literally. Um, and, um, you know, and, and so it was, it was, uh, it was a tough period for sure. I, 
I, uh, but, but back then there were no real, it wasn't like I could just go on Twitter and tell everyone, write a, write a, some tailor like thread on, on all the lessons I've learned about fucking as a, a, a working with partners or not having your legal documents buttoned up, or, you know, I could probably write 500 threads on this stuff today. Back then there was nowhere to turn. Like you just, you know, Twitter just came out, I think, but, uh, but there was nowhere to turn. Like there was nothing to, there was no, there was no, nowhere to get help to, to find other people who had failed. Uh, and then, like I said, timing's a real funny thing. The, as we were, as that was c- crashing and burning in, in Santa Monica, where we were based, uh, Santa Monica, California, we all of a sudden uh, tech, there was nobody in tech when we were there. And all of a sudden now it's Silicon Beach and, and there's company, you know, Snap gets uh, formed in, in Venice and, and there's all, the, all this uh, VC money now in Los Angeles focusing on tech uh, and, and uh, we, we had just crashed and burned. Uh, you know, if, 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 we, if this had happened, if we had, were able to hold on for like two more years, the irony is we probably would have sold for, you know, nine figures, eight figures, uh, uh, because it was a, it was a, we were grabbing market share. We were, profits weren't necessarily there anymore, uh, or the level of profits with the margin shrinking, but we were grabbing market share. We were, we, our revenue was going up and up and up and up. And uh, I'm sure there would have been a nice exit for somebody uh, back then, but we couldn't hold on those extra two years. Well, you said it was a, a wild tale about deception and friends. Uh, I know you didn't get too deep into it, but you can tell, at least I can tell just talking to you that there's, there's, there's a lot of pain there, right? That, that, that was a big moment in your life. Oh yeah. I, I still choke up about it. Uh, again, I, I think mostly from the, the, the betrayal and the friendships lost and all that stuff. I mean, I think the, the, I mean, again, I can, we could spend hours talking about this or I can, uh, in some sadistic way, but like it, you know, literally having 40 something employees and laying them all, all off one by one. And, and, uh, you know, we were we were on eBay in the last like we had closed shop and I was on eBay like selling off desks and stuff you know like we we were just trying to raise capital to 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 close the business appropriately and it was uh, it was insane just the the uh, that and and I had you know at, at my height I had three business partners um, different of different uh, um, sizes uh, of of ownership and and like two and a half of them just bailed. One of them was the one who torpedoed us and some of the others bailed. And, and uh, I'm literally left there. Like when I say bail, they like fled the state bailed. Like they're like, I don't want anything to do with this. <laughs> and I stood behind like some martyr to, to lay off everybody and, and, you know, get caught up on payroll taxes and all that stuff. Right. And, uh, yeah, it was a, it was a miserable time, but it, but it, you know, uh, the funny thing about life, you know, as you get older uh, and I'm sure every, this is not exactly like I went to Vietnam here. Right. I mean, I, 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 I do have perspective here. It's not the most miserable thing in the world. Uh, but, but, you know, those, everything you do in life, uh, builds battle scars for you and, and you, and, you know, 
those who can those who can learn from that and not wallow in it uh, are those who who tend to come out the other end. And I'd like to think that's what's happened with me. I and, and like I said, I, I've seen at this point, I feel like I've seen almost everything, like in business and or in in uh, whatever every scheme out there, every uh, every uh, form of advertising, and you, you know, you you take your pick. And and so it just I feel like it's just using that playbook I've learned over the years. Um, you know, I feel like that those like 65 year old, uh, uh, offensive coordinators in football who have, who have been running, like seen every gimmick system that's come out, uh, in, in offense. And they're like, yeah, we've seen this, 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 this will be adjusted against next year. Don't worry. <laughs> and we'll, we'll go back to running the, uh, to running a pro offense, you know? Um, and so I, I feel like I just got this amazing playbook, uh, and, and that time period really was formative in that. Lots of killer skill set to have, right? To always be thinking long term and not worry about the little things or, or, you know, some of the stuff that you've been through and knowing the pitfalls to avoid. And obviously it shows that if you've been running mod law for 10 years, but how how long did you sit there and sulk like before you decided I'm going to get up and, and try something again? Yeah. I mean, I have an amazing wife who, uh, happens to be a psychologist. So that helped quite a bit. <laughs> um, I, my dad actually came and spent and, and my parent, both my parents, but my dad especially came and stayed with me for like three months to help me close everything up, uh, which was amazing. Um, seemed like three months anyways, maybe it wasn't that long, but, um, and, uh, yeah, I, I, uh, I spent a good year sulking. Um, I went to, I got into therapy. I went to, uh, you know, I had all these other ideas of things I wanted to, well, first I was saying, how can I leverage what I learned from that business into my next career? Um, and, you know, I could have gotten back into building websites, um, which is what we really was the, again, the, the value, uh, locked up in that company. Um, I didn't really necessarily want to get into e-commerce immediately. Uh, there, there's some things I learned, uh, working with consumers is not always the fun, the most enjoyable thing. Um, <laughs> so, uh, I, I'm not sure I wanted to jump back into dealing with consumers, but there were, there were, there was sort of the enterprise version of, of website building and SEO knowledge and all that. And I, I did some consulting for a consumer electronics, uh, manufacturer, um, fairly big size one and, and help them on their e-com platform and their, their direct to consumer business at the time that they were just launching. Um, and so I, I did a little of that and then, um, yeah, I spent, uh, the, it was, it was at least a year, at least a year, maybe two. Well, what was the first thing that like excited you enough to say, I'm, I'm going to try this again. Well, I, so, I mean, in hindsight, I wish I was, I was bolder, but I wasn't, um, I, I didn't want to go right into, uh, my own thing again, because I didn't want to, I didn't want to put risk capital in there. Um, and that's another thing I learned. I, I've actually never learned that lesson, but a lot of people have learned, <laughs> which is, you know, use other people's money. Don't use your own. Um, in, in, and I never learned that lesson. I still haven't today, really. But um, but uh, I, I didn't want to go out there and raise a friends and family round for some of the projects I'd been working on or or whatever. And so I was just doing this consulting work um, for a good two years and uh, or something along those lines. And um, 
then a, an old buddy of mine um, uh, who had done some venture work uh, uh, mentioned that he knew this uh, woman that was in um, this dietitian in uh, Manhattan. She was sort of the dietitian to the stars. And she had this idea for a, a daily newsletter slash website um, that was uh, sort of talking about health and nutrition in a fun, youthful way, as opposed to like, you know, reading about vitamin D deficiencies or whatever in men's journal or whatever, you know, it's, it was more tailored for the us weekly crowd. Um, and so, uh, that was her idea. And so I, I met with, uh, I flew to New York, I met with her, um, and, uh, and we decided to, to do a, a friends and family round, uh, seed round there. And, uh, and I came on as COO and, um, and that I so I completely almost abandoned everything I knew about e-commerce and went straight into uh, into uh, uh, content and, and newsletters and that fun stuff. And, uh, that was my next stage. It was all like like a newsletter business back then. Yeah, so there there were several. I mean, they still exist today in some respects, but there were several. Um, there were several sort of modeled websites out there that um, that existed in the in the news email newsletter space. Um, one was called Daily Candy, uh, which ended up selling to Comcast down the road. But it was like a daily burst of like just stuff. <laughs> um, and, and today, like the, the um, today, so it's man, I forgot the name. Swim? No, not swim daily swim there's a there's there's one out there that that's like them today um but then on the mail side there was like thrill list and and urban daddy and all these daily newsletters that still exist by the way several of them do um and uh and so that was sort of the instead of like your mom uh forwarding you like ridiculous jokes every day or something in your aol email it was like it was there were daily newsletters of of uh, health and nutrition advice uh, done really well, uh, designed beautifully um, back in the day, and uh, and uh, we built a content business. I hired a, a, an editor in chief that came from Us Weekly, and um, yeah, it was my first foray into not only a vertical I knew nothing about uh, health and nutrition, but but also into content. I didn't even know that was a thing back then, right? Like the you know, yeah, uh, not- morning morning brew, uh, the hustle, like. Uh, uh, huddle up. Yeah, so I, now I they're coming back, right? So now you have everybody building Substack emails, right? Um, and 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 people paying for it. This was our business was purely, and, and all the ones back then were purely ad based. Um, they were not. They were not uh, subscription based. The skim. It's called the skim. If you look that up, S K I M M. I didn't even know that was a thing back there. So, uh, no, no, that exists today. Oh, oh, that would exist today. But like the ones you were running back then, what are they like? They just getting sponsored content to put inside the newsletter. Is that how they're monetizing this or through, is there affiliate links back then or how are they monetizing? There were affiliate links. Yeah. So we were running, it was my first, uh, we were running commission junction and, and, uh, if you're familiar with that, um, and, uh, we were, you know, those types of sites, I think there was another one out there just like them. Um, I think it was called. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was it was it was affiliate based uh, there. There was some ad spend, but we were a startup, so we didn't really care about making money yet. We were just trying to build readers. 
Uh, so it was, it was a fascinating way, fascinating uh, journey for me to learn how to build readers. Of course, I, t- I brought my SEO knowledge with me. Uh, we built the site off of Joomla back in the day. And, um, and uh, I brought my SEO knowledge and, and that, was, that was great. But we were, you know, I got into the, the, ug- under, the ugly underbelly of the world of uh, buying email lists and stuff like that. Uh, which is still very ugly today, um, and uh, and you know, you know, this was before double opt-in was really a thing. You could single opt-in into a list, and so you didn't have to legally, so you didn't have to worry about that. And, um, and this was really before uh, you know, Amazon, uh, 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 Google uh, was was dropping people into like weird mailboxes and stuff. So you could you would always end up at, you almost had a guaranteed delivery rate. Um, and so it was, uh, it was all about open rates and, and click throughs and all that stuff. And it was a fun time. So you mentioned that this, you, you specifically worded as exited, like, were you, uh, was that company acquired? Yeah. So, um, you know, it was one of those things where, uh, man, that was another fun time, but we, we had a, uh, my partner, uh, uh, was, uh, her husband and wife, there were a husband and wife team both in there. I should have learned my lesson from working with friends. I worked with a, a couple um, and that was not the best experience in the world. Um, and, um, you know, she had her own, she, uh, my partner wasn't in the practice. It wasn't in the business every day. She was, um, she was and still today runs a, a very successful uh, uh, dietitian practice. Uh, when I say successful, I mean, I'm talking about people who in, Upper East Side or Upper West Side that dropped 10k for like three sessions with her, um, and uh, and so you know she um, that was sort of her lifeblood and 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 uh, there were a lot of conflicts between her her time there and her time in our business and and so on and so forth and like she would get you know she would get appearances on we had a PR firm she get appearances on the Today Show and and like what would be literally on the Chiron. Uh, down there, like what? What are we pushing? <laughs> the, the her practice or this or whatever was was kind of challenging, and um, so we uh, and she had written a, a diet book that had been started getting really popular. Um, so I uh, so yeah, we we ended up we ended up saying you know this is just not going to go where we want it to be. Um, I can send you a, a link here. This is this is the. This is her business today, um, but um, I uh, we we found so basically part of this was that she had um, developed this diet that we were sort of tying into this this website, if you will, and um, into this platform that we had built, and so uh, there was a a uh, health. Uh, food company that was interested, uh, in our, in our email list. Um, and, um, so they, they ended up buying the company, um, and they, uh, and and they literally sunsetted it, uh, the next day. I had no idea that was going to happen, honestly. And, and so they, 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 they took the, the, the readership and, and sunsetted the rest of it. And, um, yeah, that the the company that I'm showing you there right now is a, is a um, is is 
the portion we kept or she kept. So I have to assume you had difficulties with friends. You had difficulties working with someone else in a couple that like that leads you to saying, I got, I got to do this on my own. You would think, um, I'm a glutton for punishment, man. Okay. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think one of my, one of my characteristics, it's, it's sort of why I'm, I've always been sort of a, a C class guy is because I, if it wasn't for, for tech, I probably would have been a politician. Uh, I, I feel like I'm, uh, one of my sort of, you know, master skills is, is, uh, bridging, uh, communication between all kinds of interesting people, um, and, and being able to, to build sort of a consent, uh, uh, you know, uh, getting people to sort of, uh, you know, agree on a certain thing or, or whatever. And so, um, I learned from both working with friends and that crazy experience to them working with a husband and wife team. That was insane as well. Um, and I, I learned, uh, to, I learned to sort of, um, uh, you know, again, it was sort of my secret power. And, um, and so I ended up, uh, when when that exited um you know and it wasn't i people when they say exit like it seems like oh yeah you made millions no i mean it was a, it was like a solid double or single it was not not it was not a triple or home run um but it gave me a little bandwidth and um and i did some more consulting work and then my old buddy uh again there it is again buddies uh, that old buddy uh, that had originally been like a partner for like 5 minutes at, at my first company um, and had mentioned the, 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 the plasma TV thing to us, he, uh, said, let's grab some dinner. I flew into Miami where I'm originally from and where he's based out of. And he told me about this crazy world of furniture. And I said, I don't know a damn thing about furniture. And, but, um, at the time that vertical had next to zero e-com presence, um, it, it's a vertical largely dominated by generational families um and i'm being kind by saying that but uh you know very very elder uh statesmen of in that business and um the notion of of selling anything online was insane to them i we literally walked around with a scarlet letter uh at my first furniture market and um so he uh he talked to me about all the trials and tribulations i came in and sort of as a consultant and then later on as a partner uh uh, and, um, the business had been around for a few years, but it really wasn't much of a business at that point. Um, and, um, and we started, uh, we started building it and that was about a decade ago. Um, and, uh, you know, we're, we're now seeing the fruits of it, but it was a, it was a long build for sure. Well, you said in the, in the early parts of the show, how everything appears to be an overnight success and we've spent an hour and 40 minutes and we really haven't even talked about the business that you're, you know, we're just getting to like the, the genesis of this business that's doing extremely well for you 10 years later. Right. And so like, I love having people on here that can walk through that whole journey because I, I, you know, at one point when I started this, I was like 29 or 30. When I started this, I, I felt the same thing of like, why am I not successful immediately? And now I'm only, you know, six years in seven years in whatever it is. Um, and I'm, I feel like I'm just getting started already. Right. And so it, it's interesting to hear, 
your long windy journey and also you know see the flaws honestly in in you know maybe seeking out other people to do it with um maybe you weren't confident in yourself or or uh you know learning some hard lessons along the way like i love hearing stories like this and and you're just getting to what what is now you know a, a I would say a claim to fame for you, right? Like a, uh, a great business that you're, you're leading now. Yeah, I think, I think the, the key component, uh, you know, in hindsight, I maybe would have changed things a little but but things are, you know, again, no complaints right now of where I am in my career, but, uh, I think I got turned off a little by using my own capital, um, early on. And so I started gravitating towards, others, whether it was a fa- friends and family round or, uh, or, um, my partners at, at mod law for, uh, uh, one of our partners is, uh, you know, has put up most of the capital uh, from day one. And so I didn't really have to, my risk was my sweat equity and, um, and, and I love betting on myself. Um, but, uh, I, I think I got a little too shy in hindsight from putting my own capital at play, which probably stopped me from doing a few other ventures. Well, you mentioned earlier how you're not a commodity in my life, right? Like, I think on our little pre-call, you mentioned there's furniture you can buy from Amazon that comes in a box and you got to put together. And then there's Ikea and you you feel like you're, you know, a few steps above that, right? Like you said, yours comes fully assembled. Uh, it's just a higher quality at maybe a cheaper price than that higher quality uh, you would pay for elsewhere. But like, how how did you acquire customers in the beginning? What, like, as you're beginning and starting out and you're trying to set yourself apart, um, is it just because you were online before anybody else was online or, or how did you begin to like make a name for yourself in Modloft? Yeah. So in many respects, it was just right back to the consumer electronics days, right? There was, there was so little competition that, um, that, you know, it wasn't terribly hard to, to, to score some good keywords um, on SEO. Uh, you, you had, there, there's always, you know, it wasn't like the, the internet was immature at that point. It was, it was absolutely uh, mature. E-commerce was mature, but it wasn't, this vertical wasn't. So you had all these people who were, um, you know, everyone would say to me, who's going to buy a sofa on the internet? By the way, the same people who said who would buy TVs on the internet, but. And the but same people who are saying, why would you buy a JPEG on the internet? It's the right, same. Exactly. Exactly. But, but I get it. Like I, I would want to sit on my sofa before I uh, buy it. I'm, I'm a comfort guy. I want to make sure that I like it the way it feels, right? So I get the concept, um, but, you know, there's mitigating ways around that, right? Uh, free, free shipping, free returns, 30-day free trials, that kind of stuff. Um, and we have an extraordinarily low return rate. It's like sub 1%. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it, it's a... It's a uh, you asked how I was acquiring customers. We were, um, we developed a strategy that, um, was, we knew we weren't, we didn't have millions of dollars in the bank. We could have got one and got it, but and maybe in hindsight we should have, but, um, we didn't, we didn't, uh, we didn't have millions of dollars in the bank. We, we had, uh, you know, we were, we were bootstrapped. And so the way we decided to do it was to go the wholesale route. Um, so we, uh, wholesale, we off almost exclusively our business was wholesale at that moment. Uh, in the early days, we were selling to what is now called Wayfair. Um, but back in the day, uh, and for your listeners who don't know, Wayfair is a multi zillionaire company now that literally, like the only one who's successfully taken on Amazon in, in the modern day, 
in, in a single vertical. Um, oh, they started and, the same way you and your friends did, right? It was like a zillion different niche dropshipping sites that morphed into Wayfair. We knew them. We knew we knew Neerj and, and Steve, the two founders. Uh, they because they were in the same space. Their most popular website back in the day was called uh, was it Plasma TV Stands and More or something like that. It was like some they were selling accessories. Um, but yeah, they built a network of uh, under a company called CSN Stores. Um, they built a network of, uh, I don't know, a couple hundred sites. Again, back then, domain authority meant everything. So if you wanted to uh, rank for, um, I don't know, uh, replacement light bulbs, you if your website was called replacementlightbulbs.com, you, 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 I mean, you had to really mess up to not rank on page one there, right? And so um, that was their strategy, and that was sort of our strategy back uh, in, in my day, early days as well. And, um, so, uh, we knew them and, and, um, or I knew them and, and, uh, and we grew up with, uh, them. They, they decided to rebrand as Wayfair. Uh, there was another company uh, that was doing similar things uh, out of Nebraska called, uh, uh, net shops. And they ended up becoming a company called Hay Needle, which ended up being acquired by Walmart uh, a few years back. Um, so there's, a. Uh, there, you know, there's a sort of playbook there. Like I said, every I've seen it all, but um, uh, yeah, we 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 put Wayfair went and raised, you know, went public and raised millions and billions of dollars, and they were spending all kinds of money acquiring customers. And so our goal back then was to uh, leverage our wholesale accounts, not just them but others, um, uh, to to get people introduced to the brand, and then it was our job to retain them. Um, and build word of mouth. And uh, eventually, it was only about five years ago, about halfway in, where we decided to go direct-to-consumer. Even though our plan all along was to do direct-to-consumer, we wanted to build enough people out there that had boxes arriving in their homes with Modloft and leave-behinds in their boxes uh, to build branding <laughs> equity. And by the way, probably a dirty secret. Um, I'll probably get killed for saying this, but but like you, when you when you're drop in the dropship business and you own, uh, and you're the one doing the dropshipping. I don't know if you've been on that side or if you're only you yourself have only been on the side or you've only dropship used distributors to dropship their product. But uh, they we have the consignee emails. I mean, uh, mailing addresses and in many cases emails from all these people, right? So. Anytime Wayfair sold something, they sent us an order. We know we knew their customer. We knew everything about their customer. We knew their phone number, their email, their their everything. And uh, you know, in today's day and age, we were able to take that that information and uh, and build audiences on Facebook and Instagram off of their customer. We wouldn't it was we wouldn't go out and solicit their customer because that would be wrong. That would be that that was that was too gray for me, <laughs> but uh, but we would build audiences around their friends and their and and so on and so forth, and that's how we sort of just started building this up, minute by minute, day by day. So is everything that you have from the beginning your own product? I, I, I guess I was under the impression that you were more of a retailer as well at Modloft. No, we we so I mean in the early early days, uh, my partner before I was even there, my partner was importing product that he found in Shanghai or whatever, Guangzhou uh, trade shows. And, um, and he ended up, uh, we ended up 
uh, you know, coming to the conclusion again that if we were just selling, if we if we could buy buy it from that trade show, then so can any, a zillion other people, right? Um, so we decided to start developing our own product uh, about eight years ago, and uh, yeah, we almost almost everything we sell today uh, we manufact we designed and manufactured. Um, but uh, there are a few relationships where there's a, a factory or a brand uh, internationally that has no presence in the U.S., doesn't know how to get their foot in the U.S., um, and so we are a master distributor of their product, but we, re we rebrand it as, as Mildloft. But, yeah, I, had no, I had no idea that you were almost exclusively making your own products. And um, How did I not know you were an SEO guy? How has it never like came up that you and I haven't shot the shit on SEO? Because SEO is not cool anymore. Nobody wants to talk about <laughs> it, man. Everybody's talking about, uh, you know, Facebook audiences and Instagram audiences and whatever. But yeah, I mean, I'm, SEO is still my jam. I mean, I'm not, I, I hardly know it like I used to, clearly. And, and the world has changed quite a bit. I don't think PageRank exists anymore, right? <laughs> but uh, but uh, yeah, I was, a, I was an SEO geek. I think you and Jeff Vogel and I could have a little SEO conversation sometime. That's the same thing for him, uh, writing content. And, um, you know, that's what's made the, the businesses I've worked on or worked with through consulting. Like that's, that's the big lever to pull. And, um, I've got a lot to learn on the, on the, the Instagram and Facebook side. And it sounds like, you know, right as I'm ready to learn it, it's going to get all kinds of wacky anyway. Yeah. Well, and SEO is kind of weird, right? Because you're, um, one of the challenges of Modloff is we we are we position we've positioned ourselves with our price point and our branding as a luxury brand, uh, and luxury brands by rules sort of don't want to play the SEO game um, because it, they're possibly doing things that are not you know even today we uh, we we write an article for something and uh, to drive traffic to our site and. Uh, we really don't want anyone to read it other than the people who are searching for it because it's not really on brand, if you will, uh, as far as speaking towards a luxury. It's like, you know, it would be like uh, Ferrari having, a, not the comparison Ferrari, but it would be like Ferrari having like, you know, schlocky uh, blog articles uh, to drive traffic to Ferrari.com. You know, like you, you don't want to do that. They don't want to see that. Uh, so it's it's been a really interesting balance trying to figure that all out. Um, and we probably, probably too often have, have landed on the side of let's protect, let, let's build the brand and, and don't worry so much about the traffic uh, that came, you know, there, there's a healthy balance there. We're, we're still trying to find. Yeah. I think you might be better served with your branding to almost set up a PBN, if you will. I know those are, you know, naughty words nowadays, but having multiple sites talking about luxury furniture and all, you know, pointing back to you. Uh, look, I know we're short on time. I only got two more questions for you. So, what is it? What is the end goal for you with with Modlaw? Where, where do you hope to go? I know you're you, you're hitting big numbers. Is this like something you want to run forever? Is this something you're hoping to be acquired? Yeah, I think. Uh, I mean, we have those conversations daily, um, or you know, quarterly. Anyways, um, we are uh, we are in an extraordinary growth mode. I mean, we were already in a we had you know all kinds of things going our way for a change. So we had the verticals finally starting to like. You know, there's an audience of customers that are that are buying online now that never did before. Uh, that was pre-pandemic, and now you know millennials for sure uh, had no problems buying furniture online, uh, but they weren't really our customer base per se back in the day. But now, you know, ten years later, they got money, 
Um, and so they're buying, then you have the pandemic buying, uh, uh, and people investing in their homes, all their disposable dollars, all that. We've just been at this intersection of like insanely positive waves coming our way, uh, that are not going anywhere. And, and, you know, I, I think I posted about this the other day. Uh, we are, you know, we're up a considerable amount from last year, year over year, even though everyone's comping against that April from 2020, we, we, we crushed our April 2020. Um, and and uh, this entire year, we're going to crush last year, which was a fantastic year on its own. Uh, so we, we feel like uh, those disposable, you know, that the, the behavior of purchasing this product online is not going anywhere. It's only, it's only getting bigger. Um, and our goal is to, to be a big part of that. Now, you know, we do, Modloft does live in sort of a niche of modern furniture. Um, and uh, so we don't sell to the Ikea crowd uh, generally. Um, and so there's not a lot, not that there's anything wrong with the Ikea crowd, but we just, that's just not our customer. So our customer does have a, a certain uh, uh, income base and, and so on and so forth. So I think that, uh, you know, we're going to, we got a lot of headroom left to grow in this. Uh, we're, we're, we're going to, uh, we're going to do it regardless of what our exit strategy is, but we have, we have not taken on additional capital yet. We have not brought on strategic investors. Uh, these are all things where we're constantly being um, bombarded with, with uh, offers for, and we're talking to looking at, we're looking at doing it, but thankfully we haven't needed outside capital to grow. We've been profitable for, for quite some time. Um, and now we're wildly profitable and, and, um, investing every dollar right back in our inventory, right back in our customer acquisition, launching a new website. Our website is 10 years old. It's a piece of crap. Uh, and, uh, we're, we're launching a brand new, uh, website, uh, next month, June, yeah, next month. And, um, and, uh, we, uh, we still swim in wholesale markets. We still swim in, in direct to consumer completely omni-channel. We have a brick and mortar location. We had three prior to COVID down the one flagship store right now, but going to re-expand. And uh, our goal is to our goal is to uh, to see where this takes us. Uh, you know, exiting exiting only helps if you we we, we there, this ride isn't coming to an end anytime soon so there's no like urgent need to get out um but we do feel like once we cross and we're, we're close to but once we cross that sort of uh um nine figure uh uh place um uh into that territory that that we're going to need additional funding um, and, and if we do that then it may be in terms of an exit or in terms of private equity or something along those lines. Well, I'll say the, this last one is just a little bit of room for your micro rant as a Miami kid living in California. Tell me, tell me your small little rant on, on Miami versus California here. Oh man. Uh, I'm like, I'm like a black sheep because I love Miami. I grew up in Miami. I I'm, I'm all for it, but I've also lived here 20 years in Los Angeles and I, um, I could tell you the good, bad, and the ugly of Miami. Granted, things change, but we're based, my, my loss based on Miami. I spent pre pandemic, I spent half my month in Miami, um, or half the year, I should say, maybe a quarter of the year. And, um, and so I, I know the town well. Um, you know, I get the sentiment, uh, certainly from, from Silicon Valley, I get the sentiment of, of, of leaving there. That the, 
the cost of living up there is so insane. Um, nobody should have to uh, spend five thousand dollars for like a eight hundred square foot studio, you know. Um, but the um, but you know my my little rant, if you will, is is that there's all these people ha that have fled as has been well documented, fled from California to tech, to Austin or Miami uh, or Nashville or Vegas or whatever, but largely Austin or Miami. And, and uh, listen, th those guys, there's a reason why they're in those tax states. Uh, they, they, they were they, at their heart, they were no taxation because they were not desirable places to live. So they had to encourage people to move there by saying, come here and we won't tr take your money. Um, now, you know, it's not, Miami's not quite the swampland that it was uh, in the 60s. Uh, so it, there's obviously so many great parts of Miami now. Um, but, you know, I, fi I do find it hilarious that a lot of these people have all moved in the last say nine months have not lived a summer yet in Miami. And <laughs> I, I can't wait to, I'm sure, I'm sure they'll, the Kool-Aid will, will keep going uh, even through the summer, but secretly they'll be wondering why they're showering three times a day. And, uh, <laughs> and, and uh, why, you know, all those wonderful pictures of them playing tennis and, and having, you know, a cafe con leche outside in the patio uh, that they keep posting on Twitter about like why it rains all day long. Uh, and it, it's not just rain, it's like torrential rain, uh, in that summertime. And, and, you know, and so and with global warming, summer is longer and longer these days. Uh, so uh, it'll be interesting to see. I, I just, I don't know. I, I, I have like a visceral reaction to anybody who's like sitting there and they're, and, and they have to, they feel like they have to justify their decision for moving there, which again, there's some really valid reasons to do it. Uh, myself included, as I look at an exit uh, in Modloft, the last thing I want to do is give 12% to California. Um, so, you know, I, I get it. Don't trust me. I get it. And, the, and, the, and while I'm, uh, you know, we won't get into politics, but I'm certainly uh, understand the frustration of, of, how extreme the politics to the left have gotten over here. Um, so I, I get all that. Um, but that being said, I just don't understand the mentality of like constantly telling people how wonderful it is over there and please move here. Uh, you got to move here and so on and so forth. And, and the reality is, is they're trying to will it into place. They're, the, if, if you go look at, and I did this for fun the other day, um, if you go look at, some of these companies that are the most vocal over there, the VCs that are most vocal over there, and you look at their portfolio companies and you see their job postings, and then you go see who's filling those job postings. They're, they're, they're not people that are native to Miami. They're, they're bringing people from other parts of the country to come relocate down there, which is great, but don't, don't, don't tell me that Miami is a huge tech hub yet. It is not, it is not a, uh, it is still largely, uh, I won't go there, but it's just, it's not, it's, it's not, a, it's not what they say it is. Let's just put that. And, 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 and I'm, and I'm, I'm rooting for Miami. I'm a huge Miami Heat fan. I'm a huge Miami Dolphins fan. I, I love Miami. Um, and I go there all the time. My parents are there. My family's there. Uh, but I just, I just don't, I don't get the whole, why do, why we have to talk about it incessantly 
uh, on Twitter and and articles thing. Well, the heat's enough to keep me away. Uh, I know my wife and I have discussed Florida or Texas or Las Vegas or anywhere to save you know a little bit of taxes, and it's just like. Ugh. I don't think I could do it. I don't think that the heat I could stand, let alone it being in Wisconsin, you know, we have to deal with winters, but we don't basically don't get tornadoes. We have no poisonous bugs. We have no reptiles. We don't have, and we don't have that, you know, just like choking heat, uh, with, with, you know, so much moisture in the air that you're just dripping all day long. Yeah. And trust me, you know, again, I live in Los Angeles. I understand earthquakes, right? So I understand that I don't live in a perfect place either. Right. There is no perfect place for what it's worth, but uh, but the thing about earthquakes is, uh, I've been here 20 years. I've, I, I, I came here after the big Northridge one, so I didn't really experience that one. But, but the reality is like, you don't, the, the pro and the con of it is you don't know when it's coming. Right. So you can just, you live your life and you try it and you know, you don't really think about it. Um, and in Miami, uh, and in Florida in particular, again, especially with global warming now and, and what's going on, I mean, we've seen all these hurricanes over the last you know, 10 years or so, and it's just getting worse and worse and worse. And what's, what's happening is that when they come, you have to, when, when the news, when they form in the, in the Caribbean and they form in the Caribbean, uh, you have two options as a, as a resident in Florida, you, you either flee, uh, or you stay and buckle, you know, put your shutters up and, and hope for the best. Either way, it's a complete disruption, uh, to your business. We, I mean, again, we have an office in Miami. Our 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 Modloff's off, uh, main office is in North Miami, and once a year we're we're shut down for a week because because people have to are either fleeing or they have to stay uh, home and sh- and put their shutters up or whatever. And then after the hurricane comes, even if it's just a tropical storm or whatever, the power goes out for a few days and the flooding is you can't drive to the office. I mean, it's it, it's just again. I, Pros and cons everywhere you live. Love it. I, I just, to say the greatest thing since sliced bread is just kind of humorous to me. That's all. Well, I appreciate having you on and sharing your story. It was uh, interesting to say the least, man. I think we went off on a bunch of tangents, but that's what uh, I love about my own show. So I uh, appreciate you coming on. If anybody wants to reach out to you, buddy, what's the best way to do so? Uh, Twitter's fine. I, uh, it's Neil Cousins, N-E-I-L-K-U-S-E-N-S. Um, Sounds, it looks like cousins, but it's actually cousins. Uh, it's a Neil Cousins at Twitter, or um, you know, you, you can find me at Modloft. I'm sure one of my employees will will point you in the right direction. Well, I appreciate you, buddy. Thanks for coming on, man. All right, thanks, Ben. Big thanks to my buddy Neil for coming on the show. Thanks so much, Neil, for uh, taking the time. I appreciate it. If you are in the market for elite modern furniture for your contemporary home, definitely check out Modloft.com. I'll put that in the show notes. I'll put Neil's Twitter in there as well if you want to give him a follow. Uh, And like I said, I'll be back uh, in a couple weeks. I'm going to take a week off uh, in between episodes here for a little while as uh, likely next time you hear from me, I will be a new father. So uh, bear with me and thanks for following along. I appreciate all of you very, very much. And I will see all of you in a couple Wednesdays. Wednesdays.